was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to present my conversation with Broadway star and Tony nominee, Nancy Dusso. She was Tony nominated for her performances on Broadway in Bajor, and in one of my favorite musicals of all time, Do Re Mi, which was part of why it was such a thrill to talk to her. She also replaced in the starring roles of Into the Woods and The Sound of Music and in Side by Side by Sondheim in their original productions. She starred on tour in The Sisters Rosenzweig and in Carousel and Finian's Rainbow at City Center, in Street Scene and The Cradle Will Rock at the City Opera, and Candide and Sunday in the Park with George in Los Angeles, among many others. You may remember her on screen as Muriel Rush in the hit sitcom Too Close for Comfort, Carol Cornpet in 1979's The In-Laws, or as Carol Davis on the new Dick Van Dyke show. But before we get to the episode, I want to take a moment to mourn the passing today of one of Backstage Babble's previous guests, the legendary Ed Asner. To get to meet him was an absolute thrill, and to find that he was just like Lou Grant, irascible yet charming. At the end of the interview, he said every actor should have someone like you, and that is something that I can treasure forever. He has an incredible legacy of work that will stay with us for a long time. And it's been incredibly rewarding to be able to talk to these people that I've admired for so long, like Ed Hasner and like this week's guest. So without further ado, the incredibly talented Nancy Dusso. So I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater. Um, it's, you know, in the era that I was brought up in, I never, I never had a dream about it. And like in high school, finally in high school near the end, because I always sang in choirs and uh, did things like that. But I also moved around all the time. My dad was a Navy man, so we didn't stay in one place very long. I took piano lessons, I took dance. Uh, I was very good, but I couldn't be consistent about it. Finally in high school, I had a a voice teacher, I mean, she conducted the choir. Um, And she's the one that said, you know, you you can sing. Do you know that? In fact, she, she came home, her name was Mrs. Booker, Florence Booker. I'll never forget her. She said, I wanna come home with you and talk to your family. And uh, I was ahead of myself in school anyway. I was, and so I was very kind of naive and young. And uh, so she sat everybody down and said, do you know that Nancy sings? And I mean, she really sings. And I, I didn't even know that. So she arranged for a singing teacher and I started, I ended up singing with a little band around, uh, we were living in Alexandria, Virginia at that time. I started singing with a little band and I even did some TV shows, which was local. (laughs) Uh, And it was a great thing for me, but they wanted me to finally join the union and my parents were afraid of that, which is, it's too bad. And the same uh, high school teacher, she asked me where I wanted to go to college and I was gonna go to Duke University. 
where my sister went. She said, no, no, no. I want you to go to Northwestern. And I really, and she just called. She just picked up the phone one day in her office and called and said, take her. I did not know at that time that she not only was a graduate of Northwestern, but was considered one of the best educators in the country. So they just took me, you know, and I was doing my singing lessons and all my things. And, uh, and then after my sophomore year, uh, I did summer stock. I got my first jo job. Uh, and that's when I went, oh my God, because I thought I was gonna be a teacher. That was kind of the standard for girls, women at that time. Um, that did it. <laughs> so I did, uh, I did that season and I did the next season with this company. And uh, I was very lucky in the sense that the director of this, it was the Highland Park Music Theater right outside of Chicago. And uh, the director was extremely strict. Um, he had all the singers take dance class every day. We had to do that. I mean, God forbid you should ever be late. He really taught me all the decorum yeah. and responsibilities of the theater, which thank God. I mean, that was a blessing. And then I graduated and I missed my graduation because I had a job. Oh. I went to uh, Cohasset, Massachusetts, and we were doing Can Can. And, and it was a theater in the round. You've, have you seen shows in theater in the round? Yes. Have yes, you ever seen? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I got to really like it because I found it very, very free. Um, but we were tearing down that aisle one day and the girl in front of me tripped and I fell over her and everybody else fell on me. And uh, I kept rehearsing the can-can <laughs> and everything. And... Um, but I hurt myself very badly. Oh. And uh, the boy I was going with came to visit me and he, he had to rent a station wagon so I could lay down. I couldn't sit. And oh. they took me to a specialist who said, you can't, you, you have to go home. And I was on the floor for almost a year. I laid on the, oh. which, you know, at that age, I was 19 when I graduated. I mean, my heart was broken. I thought my life was over because by this time I was so gung-ho, of course wanting to be a star, <laughs> you know, you understand. Um, but I finally got up and uh, had to do therapy. And I went back to Northwestern for about a month and worked with my singing teacher. And then in the middle of winter, I went to New York and moved in with two girls. We were, there were three of us in a studio apartment. Uh, and I, and right away I found uh, I had sung with the Chicago Symphony when I was in college. That was a great thing. Uh, my, my singing teacher there, uh, Elizabeth Weiser, a little Wagnerian soprano, uh, she entered me in every contest there was. She, she looked them up and I won a contest to sing excerpts from Carmen with the Chicago Symphony. Uh, I laugh. I, I mean, I, I would give anything if... if people that had iPhones and film and everything, because oh. boy, would I love to have seen that, that yeah. performance, you know? Uh, yeah. And I played the castanets, everything. And I weighed about a hundred pounds. This, I was a tiny little person singing. Um, but anyway, I found that the assistant conductor from Chicago was there teaching and working. And I, I started working very quickly. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, Karen and I laugh. I mean, we both, you know, we would go on auditions and open our mouths and we got hired. It's everything is so much more difficult now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there's so many more people, number one, that want to want to do this. And I'm still in awe of my high school teacher, because if she hadn't told me that, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have found out that I could do this and, and, and then find out that I really wanted to do this. Um, so it was, it was kind of miraculous to me. And many years later, I was on tour with a, a play, Sisters Rosenzweig, and uh, we were in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. And after the show matinee, the uh, usher came up to me and said, there's some two older women that are looking for you. And I went out in the hallway and I looked down and there was Florence Booker. And I started sobbing, just sobbing. You know, I ran up to her. Oh my God, you, you made my life. You changed my life. And she, she, she just laughed and kind of poo-pooed it. But she, she did. She changed my life. Yeah. You know, and I, I lucked out that way. And when I finally got to New York and settled, and I was, I got married quite early on. And I had another teacher mentor. I, I feel very lucky. I'm also very aware that as ambitious as I was in a very healthy way, my life was always very much split because I was always married. <laughs> and I, I, so I turned down jobs and, you know, certain things that I thought might not be so good, but that was my choice. And, um, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't regret it. That was a very long answer to your first question. Oh. So, <laughs> I, I do want to ask you, um, did you always know that you wanted to move to New York and then when did it finally happen or when did you finally decide? Um, like I said, that first summer in the summer stock, I, I was pretty sure then and then in the second summer after my junior year, I there was just no question. And I remember asking, I don't know if you know who Bill Hayes is. He's a had a very successful career as a singer and and doing shows and television and but I remember he was the uh, star of one of the shows I did and that was my first part in a show it was called Out of This World by Cole Porter and I and we were doing a radio interview and uh, the interviewer asked he said how long do you think it'll take Nancy to be successful in New York when she gets there and he went I mean who can answer that number one you know and he said oh maybe five years I went five years that seemed like a lifetime he said well, i don't know two maybe <laughs> whatever but it was then that's what really you know my parents were aghast um i mean obviously you have parents that really encourage you do they encourage you to when you wanted to do this yes 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 they have been have been encouraged. Yeah, see, my parents didn't encourage me. They were always uh, frightened, you know, and so I think my father was always afraid, you know, and then long after he, he die, had died, I, I was a professor at UCLA and I thought, oh golly, I hope you can see me now. You'd be so happy. I'm earning hardly anything, but I am a, you know, a professor. Yeah, I never had the advantages you had. Uh, I only had one record of one Broadway show, um, but it's interesting because when I was on the floor for almost a year, you know, my parents had a mattress on the floor in front of the TV. So that's where I started seeing people from Broadway. Yeah. But of course, by that time I already knew I was gonna go to New York. 
but it was my education wasn't so big, really all about the theater, everything. But like I said, I had very good uh, training with with the people I studied with and worked with. So I I felt ready. I felt yeah. like I, you know, I knew. So it's a big decision to do that. I mean, I, I, I have been teaching voice and you know, everybody wants to go to New York. I mean, number one, I don't know how anyone affords it now. I don't know how they do it. And doesn't your heart just ache with the closing of all the theater, all these, you know, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people have had to move out yeah. from New York. Yeah. But it'll come back. Well, tell me, tell me it's going to come back. Oh, yeah. It will. Yeah. It will. Yeah. Has to. Has to. They will see to it. They will see to it. So I do want to ask, um, if there were any performers that you saw on TV that you particularly thought you wanted to be like or that particularly inspired you? Um, you know, it was uh, the first one I saw that I knocked me out was not a lady. It was uh, Robert Preston from Music Man. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and I liked her. You know, I certainly liked her, Robert Cook and uh, some people like that. But but. It's interesting, you know, because I didn't have the people that I knew that I wanted to be like were the people I saw in the movies. Yeah. You know, I did luck out that way. My grandmother always took me, my grandmother took me to all the the movies with Judy Garland and Betty Grable and Rita Hayworth because I wanted to be Rita Hayworth because she, she was the only one I saw that had red hair because oh. I, when I was in school, nobody, it seemed like nobody had red hair. So I thought, well, that's... That's an obvious, obvious place to go. But like most people, I did want to be Judy Garland and I love Jane Powell and all those folks. And, you know, and it was nice because later I did concerts with Judy Garland and met these people. So, wow, you yeah. know. <laughs> and what was it like to meet Judy Garland and to meet some of these other people? Actually, uh, and Karen was there too. I don't know if she talked about it. We used to do these enormous benefits at Lincoln Center where they always honored a composer. And this one was, and what they did was they would hire major stars. Yeah. Hire, or I don't know if they paid them or not. It was a benefit. Uh, major stars. And then they had myself and Karen and Constance Towers did some. And it's funny because I don't remember who the men were. We were kind of the fill-in singers yeah. and this is actually the last concert that judy garland ever did oh. she had just come out of the hospital she hurt her ankle or something and uh i mean i'm five one and i never got over that even though i had on some heels when i was standing with her off stage i was looking down at her she was so tiny yeah. and so darling and with the day that she was rehearsing with the uh, 50 60 piece orchestra uh karen and i hung around we stayed, we stayed in the room and they, uh, they brought a stool out for her to sit by the uh, high, one of the high, high stools to sit by the conductor and the music started. The band that got away and Karen and I both went, oh God, you know, to have something written for you like that. And she was sitting there and she, she started laughing and she looked at us and she said, wouldn't it be funny now if Florence Henderson came out? You know, <laughs> but before the show, I was standing with her and her manager off stage, and I was nervous. I'm, yeah. you know, getting ready to sing, 
in front of Harold Arlen and Judy Garland and all those people. And she would just grab me. She'd say, oh, honey, that's it. That's the feeling. That's it. Meanwhile, her manager was giving her a glass of wine. She kept drinking wine. And then he would take it from her and offer it to all of us so that she wouldn't finish the class. <laughs> but none of us wanted it. But she, she was so darling. I, I just... And I was in awe of her, and she it was funny. They introduced her. Now we're our the periphery singers just on stage, sitting on stools, but kind of off to, to the side. And they introduced her, and she came in the wrong way. She came in from the wrong wing, oh. and so you couldn't see her. You just saw hair, a little tuft of hair. <laughs> and she came out, and then she sat, went down on her knees because Harold Irwin was at the key playing the piano. She fell on her knees by the end of the keyboard and just, oh, thank you, thank you. And she started singing and uh, I thought I was gonna faint from nerves because you just, you, you really didn't know if she was gonna make it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but boy, and she took a breath between every word as it got near the end and she slammed out the big note at the end. And of course, everyone went crazy. Uh, yeah. I had seen her at Carnegie Hall at one, one of her big, big concerts. And I don't know how I got there. I don't know why I was in the second row, how I got that ticket, but there I was. And I remember everybody around me was taking pictures, yeah. you know, flash. And she asked, please don't do that because it's so, and they went, oh God, isn't she funny? Isn't she wonderful? <laughs> I mean, they just never stopped. Yeah. And she, that, that was the point where she was, she was just sensational. I mean, she was unique. And like nobody else, don't you think? Yeah. Who did you like? Who do you like? Oh, well, I, I do love Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli, too. I mean, when Liza was her best, she was fantastic. Yeah. In fact, I saw, I think I saw it again last year, the big special she did. Yeah. And, and that was one where they, they told her exactly what to do all the time. They wouldn't, she couldn't, wasn't allowed to wander or go off or, yeah. you know, cause that, uh, and it's, I used to tell my students, I said, you've got to look at this. You've got to look at the selection of songs and how, what order they're in and, and what she does. I mean, I said, it's just a, a textbook for how to be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. When she was really on, she was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. She's still alive actually. God bless her. She is. She used to come hear me sing. And I was, I, in fact, I have on my piano, I was just looking at a picture of her and Billy Stritch. One of the first times I did Annette at the Russian tea room, they came and uh, we hung around for a while. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> All the people I know. What was the last show you saw that you loved? Oh, um, well, I, oh, I actually got to see, um, a rehearsal of one of the shows that was supposed to open, which was f called Flying Over Sunset. It was about sort of all these old Hollywood stars like Cary Grant and Claire Booth Luce. Yeah, I haven't seen anything since uh, for, I haven't been back to New York in four years. I mean, we used to come all the time. So I missed out on a, a lot of shows. The last one I saw there, I think was Hamilton, which we got to see twice in a week, which was great. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't get over that one. You know, that was a situation where we heard so much about it that we were kind of anxious that, you know, 
you always are fearful you might be disappointed or whatever. Yeah. But we walked into that theater and I saw the set and I went, oh my God. I mean, even the set I loved. And it was funny because two very New Yorker couple were sitting in front of us on their phones and very blase. And I, but I laughed because as the show went on, I, I watched them every now and then because they became, you know, more and more crazed, enthusiastic about it like I was. Yeah, when you see something really special, it, it really changes your life, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's correct. I think that the play, I'm trying to remember if I saw it when I was in college or right after I got to New York, because I don't remember the year, the play, The Miracle Worker. That, that knocked me out like nothing I'd ever seen oh. live, you know? Did you, you want to see the movie? I mean, you talk about two performances and performances, you just go, good God, this is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard for me to leave New York. You know what, I came to LA to do a series that every time I still had my apartment in New York, you know, and I still, every time we had a week off or whatever, I would fly back to New York and I'd always, I lived in the East 50s, 58th Street. And whenever I'd come over the Queensboro Bridge, you know, I mean, I would just, I'd go crazy. And I, you know, I'd say to myself, oh my God, I live here. And I made a career here. I was successful here. You know, it, I was amazed, amazed and thrilled. So it, when I finally, we kept our apartment for a long time. Uh, and then the landlord was pushing us out because we didn't want to buy it at that time. But yeah, no place like it still. So I want to ask you next how you first auditioned for the City Opera for that company and doing like street scene there. Uh, the theater, Cohasset, where I fell. Uh, the pianist there, I think his name was Don Smith. I think I'm right. Uh, we became friendly. I mean, and he worked for the New York City Opera and they were doing uh, their lighter season. They were doing street scene. And they, they were looking for someone, they said that looked 16. Obviously they didn't feel they could find someone that was sick. And he said, oh, I know someone. And I wish I could remember what I sang, sang for them, auditioned for them, but I don't. But I got the job, and yeah. uh, which was fantastic. And I had one number. Uh, what was funny, I got in trouble <laughs> very early on in that I wore a little dotted Swiss dress. I was a graduation girl. That was the character, a graduation girl. And it had elastic around the sleeves here. And I went, I was standing in the wings watching the show. Uh, and I had my arms folded like this and they said, okay, get ready because you're on in a couple of minutes. And I couldn't put my arms down. Oh. The elastic was so tight and my veins were sticking up here, you know? Oh. Uh, so they, two people, uh, people got on either side of me and helped me get my arms down and <laughs> slapping my arms. <laughs> Which, but that was, a, it was a successful show. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, beautiful music. And then they had me do the Mikado. Uh, and then I did another one. And then they, they kept bringing me in to sing for Julius Rudell, the head man at the New York City Opera. And they were just about to bump me up to bigger roles and I'll get a little more serious when I said, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, and of course, I'm curious what would have happened if I pursued it more, but I didn't. I, by that time, 
I had I, I had a job singing <clears throat> at the same time. I would go back and forth at the upstairs at the downstairs. Do you know about that? You know about that? Yes, yes, I yeah. do. Yeah, I auditioned for that in the kitchen. <laughs> Come on, I want to hear you sing. I was in the kitchen. Uh, that that was very successful for me doing doing that. Uh, I had a story in Life magazine from that. Uh, I first went to the club upstairs and the downstairs. It was really chic, and they always had a great show going on upstairs. And where all the famous composers, everybody was writing for the show, Cy Coleman, I mean, name it. And uh, I went first to see downstairs, Mabel Mercer. People thought I should go see her, uh, which I, I didn't quite get her at first, you know, because by that time her voice wasn't great. I don't know if it was ever considered great. But, after, but I went a couple more times and finally kind of got it. Oh, yeah. one, I loved what she sang. Her choice of material was so wonderful and her interpretation was so wonderful. So that was a great job for me. And I was offered several shows from that that I had to turn down, like the Fantastics and oh. a couple of other shows. Because I was, after the article in Life came out, I mean, they tied me up there. We did two shows a night there for $100 a week. So that that was that kind of a job. Uh, the other one that really, early on in my career, I had just, I'm trying to remember the sequence. I'd done some little jobs and I got married. And on my wedding night, and it was interesting, we, we got married in Virginia where my parents were and we flew back to New York that night, but it was the World Series. So we couldn't find even a hotel room in town. We were in a hotel at the airport. And I got a call from someone I'd worked with before that said, would you come in and audition tomorrow? I went, oh, sure. <laughs> so, and I got that job. It was for a show called The Versions for Five Plus One. It was an off-Broadway review. And uh, yeah. everyone was very interested in the composer, Carl Davis, and the writers, Stephen Vinever. And so everybody came. It, was, it became a very in show, not overly successful, but uh, very in. And, and through that, I got my agent. I got, you know, that, that kicked off my career big time. That was before Upstairs at the Downstairs and everything. So that was a a lucky break and I think I sang for that audition look to the rainbow or over the rainbow one of those <laughs> one of those two they got me every job those songs <laughs> I do want to ask you a little more if that's all right about Julius Monk and upstairs oh good yeah. yeah he was uh you know he was a very tall man very aristocratic looking uh very tall slim very well dressed with a sort of affected voice. I mean, you didn't, he was, I think, Southern. He sounded British. You know, you could hardly understand a word he said. Uh, I was fascinated with him. I, I mean, the, the whole scene was a, a whole new world for me, this yeah. cabaret world. And even before, after he'd hired me, before I was working, he sent me to some other places to look at people and things. And he really became kind of very protective of me. He helped me a lot. 
there were only there were four of us in the show. I did Cy Young, a, a woman named Jenny Lou Law, and uh, I'm trying to remember who my George friend. Firth. Oh, George Firth. Thank you very much. He was an old friend. Uh, yeah, I mean, and the uh, pianist Paul Trueblood and, and and another man. I mean, and I was so. I remember all during rehearsals. I thought, oh my God, Julius loves Jenny Lou Law so much. No one's even going to know I'm in the show. I, I mean, I went through this whole weird scenario in my head. Yeah. And then when the reviews came out, I got them all. And then I was embarrassed and I felt bad. <laughs> I mean, this part of me liked it a lot. You know? <laughs> but I mean, when you think about what Julius did creating this place in this beautiful townhouse there, He's 56 and how creative the shows were and the talent he had there. I mean, it was one of a kind. I mean, he, he was like no one else and the place was like nothing else. Uh, I still had my, my album. We, we were, our show was downstairs at the upstairs. <laughs> Instead of upstairs at the downstairs, we were downstairs. I know I did a skit and my parents came to New York to, to see this and I did a skit where I kept saying my father's a deviant. That was one of my lines. And when my father was in the audience, the thought of saying that in front of my father, <laughs> lordy, lordy, lordy. They always came to see me, but he never said anything yeah. nice to me. He never complimented me or said anything. My mother did a little bit, but I think part of that, you know, is, uh, their lives were very different than mine, and they were not effusive, oh, I love you, and blah, blah, blah. They just didn't express themselves that way. Yeah. And I, I, on the most part, understood it, but because I did catch my father one time waving from the audience. <laughs> That's my daughter. So I, <laughs> I knew, I knew he, he could enjoy me, so that was great. That was great. Yeah. And did you sort of consider pursuing a career in cabaret or did you know that you wanted to sort of get to Broadway? Did I always I... wanted to get to Broadway. I mean, it never, it, no, it did not occur to me uh, to do that. Even though, you know, before the, we, our review started to fill in, uh, Julius had me do a bit of an act. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I didn't know how, I didn't, I didn't really get it at, at all, yeah. I don't think. I did it, but I don't. I have no idea how good or bad it was. I think he he helped me pick some songs, and we had a wonderful pianist, Billy Roy, uh, who always played for Julie Wilson. It wasn't until much, much later, much later, that I thought about doing cabaret. Uh, Karen had done it, and very successfully. She was fantastic. She really knew how to. She told wonderful, funny stories, true stories, and picked wonderful songs. And of course, sang like a son of a gun. No one sings like her, uh, has that voice. Um, and then we, you might, you probably know this. She probably told you this. We did some concerts together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they were really wonderful. I mean, we have, bad recordings of them on cassettes and things like that. And I'm just blown away how we sang. Yeah. We were in tip top form and just 
these great voice, great voices, two great voices. And it was the first time two women had ever sung together. So that was unique in itself. And um, what was kind of too bad in a way, we both had managers, agents and everything. They just thought it was cute. Nobody said, good God, you want to maybe, maybe we should try to book you, you know, yeah. do some concerts. <laughs> Meanwhile, I booked us, the two of us at the Russian Tea Room. And then I bet it was a short time before we were due to go there. I went out to lunch with Karen one day and she said, I have good news, bad news. She said, I can't go. Uh, she had a television job or something. She said, so you, you'll do it alone. And I almost fainted. <laughs> the, I, I was so overwhelmed and terror filled my body and I got angry. Um, and she kept saying, no, no, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you. So she came over to my house the next day with a bottle of champagne and a big yellow pad of paper, which is how we did our, put our act together. Oh. You know, we would just sit and talk and we put our acts together, our concerts together in about a week, I mean, which is crazy. <laughs> so we started making a list of songs that I had sung that I liked. And she said, I always do categories. I do four songs, four songs, four songs. She said, the audience doesn't necessarily know that, but that's how she said, I keep my head straight and keep things organized and I can build from here to here to here. And then I had to pick an opening number and uh, do some other things. And I hired my pianist from college in New York, Paul Trudlin. Oh. And I laughed, he said to me on the phone, he said, I'm really expensive. And he was, yeah. uh, I mean, he really was. And I, I said, okay, okay. You know, cause I, I wanted someone I knew. Yeah. Yeah, I needed that, that comfort. And it was funny, the song I picked for my opening which Karen thought was really odd was a song called We've Got Tonight. It's a Bob Seger song. And, and right off the bat, it's, I, I know it's late. I know you're weary. That's the second. I'm glad your plans did include me. And she said, how can you sing a song with the word weary in it? And I said, well, it's late. I, yeah. I thought nothing of it. And it was great because a very wealthy friend lent me her apartment on uh, Park Avenue. And I flew in by myself. My husband came later. I flew in by myself. And as I flipped on the lights in the apartment, the radio went on and that song was playing. Oh. And I went, I called my husband immediately and I went, it's a sign, it's a sign. <laughs> I made the right choice. Uh, and it went really well. Uh, I didn't sing as well as I, I wanted to. And I remember someone videoed it for me. And when we got home, my husband said, oh, come, come on, let's sit down and watch it. And I said, no, 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 I have to watch it alone first. Because the only thing I was interested in and in watching, I knew what the voice was. And, everything and I liked what I sang. I said, I want to see if I like me, if I like if there's a real person standing or talking to the audience that you know I wasn't affected or I don't know, not telling the truth, but I watched about five minutes of it and then I said to my husband, come on in. The real me is up there. <laughs> and then I sang there again in like six months. I did another whole act. And then you know Karen and I came out here to LA and, and did our act again. And we I mean we but I still didn't really pursue it. Yeah. After I did this series, <clears throat> Too Close for Comfort, I did 
Oh. I did. And I'm sorry, you know, I did an act, but I didn't always go into New York to do it. And I'm, and I am sorry about that. I should have always gone in just to keep, I like to remind, Karen, and I say, we like to remind people we're still alive. And that we, <laughs> you know, we can still do things. So my last act, I really liked. Yeah. Uh, Life Upon the Wicked Stage. And I, you know, I said at the beginning, I'm not, this isn't all about me. I said, what I really am talking about is how lucky I've been. And I talked mostly about the composers that I actually knew and that I worked with. Because I made a list one day of all the composers and lyricists that I knew personally and was lucky enough to work with. And I went, oh my God. I mean, because people don't have that now. Yeah. You know, you're lucky if you do two shows, three shows on Broadway. I mean, I worked with Burton Lane and, and Richard Rogers and did a lot of Sondheim and Arthur Schwartz and, you know, Jerry Herman. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Oh, it's so. been remarkable. I kind yeah. of in awe of all the great people that I've, that I've known. When I did my act I'm about, this has to be about eight years ago in New York at the Metropolitan Room, Sheldon Kane, Sheldon Harnig and Margie. Oh. His wife came and I, you know, I sent him a card because I knew where they lived. I sent cards. People said, what do you mean you send cards? Everything, you do it online. I said, if they're like me, I read that someone's singing somewhere and I go, isn't that great? And then I erase it or delete it or whatever. And I forget. I said, I send the cards. And I said, it works because everyone I sent a card to came. <laughs> so it, it did make a difference. But yeah, yeah I sang at the uh, Cheek, the Blue Angel. And I sang there five songs every night. And uh, I did it three times a night, the same old five songs. <laughs> and that wasn't so great. I don't think that was so great, but people like me and he's great. He wanted to book me again for double the fee, and, but I, I didn't pursue it. Then I went into Sound of Music. And then one night they said, there's a girl singing that you may want to hear at the Blue Angel. And it was Streisand. Oh. Because I was starring in a Broadway show and, and I had sung there, you know, and I came in, oh, Nancy's here. And they put me down, you know, at a front table and out she came. And the minute she opened her mouth, I just went, oh, my God. And she was singing that song from the Fantastics. It was every song that's on her first album. Uh, I, she was not warm. She was not friendly to the audience. She had a laser beam focus. <laughs> You know, like the only thing she said during that was, you like what I'm wearing? <laughs> Bought it at a thrift shop. And then it was right back, you know, to what she was singing. I couldn't, she really blew me away. I mean, I couldn't get over her. Everything about it, even though, like I said, she wasn't, uh, she made no effort to engage the audience or, or, you know, encourage them to like her other than her gift. Yeah. You know, which is interesting. I mean, I saw her last year. The year before last, right before she went on another mini tour, <laughs> someone took me to see her downtown at the Staples Center. And it's interesting because she talked to the audience and, of course, was much more friendly and easy with it. But I thought, I know everything's written. I, I don't think it's something that is easy for her. Yeah. You know, she sounded great. And it was, it was fun to see her again after all those years. I mean... Because she too is one of a kind and so so unique and her sound, her her taste in yeah. music, you know, it's uh, all those things affect you a lot, <laughs> which is, you know, when you see people like that, it's great. 
it's great. I'm jumping all over the place in my career. Oh, but hey, you know, so you know so much. I'm so impressed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I want to ask you next about um another great writer that you worked with, which was Mark Blitzstein on No for an Answer. Yes. Uh I don't you know, unfortunately, I don't remember a lot about him. Oh, yeah. Other than we worked together and he coached me. I was uh unaware at, at that time and because I didn't have Google yeah now I google everything every day I mean I'm so busy googling everybody and getting information you know uh and it never occurred to me to really try to find out more about him which is kind of too bad because <laughs> yeah. now I now I do now I do I like to get all my background information and so I can appreciate everybody more. You know, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. But I, I think there's a recording out of that. Yes, yes. There is, I think. And yeah. I didn't tell any of us, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a recording out. So I had a cassette of it. Okay. Was Tammy Grimes in it? Um, Tammy Grimes was in the Cradle Rock, which you did at City. Cradle Hall. Rock. I'm thinking about that too. That's right, because I did that too. Yeah. 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 That's the one. I remember that all that much, much better. I always remember Tammy. I would jokingly give her singing lessons and I almost ruined her voice because we were just horsing around in the dressing. But, but that was fun. I loved working at City Center. Yeah. That was a great place to work, you know, because they did, they did events like that, shows like that. And then they had that season where they did, I can't remember how many shows they did a year. I don't know if it was three or six, <laughs> but uh, you know, I got to do, uh, what else did I do there? Carousel. Oh yes. We did a beautiful version of Carousel. Oh my God. And then Finian's Rainbow. That's where I got to know Burton Lane. Uh, he wanted to meet me and hear me sing. I think, I thought I'd been hired, but I, but I know he wanted approval. So I went to his apartment with Paul Trueblood, my my still favorite pianist, even though he charged me too much. And uh, we chose a song. And to this day, I thought, why did we think this song was a good idea? It was a song by Arthur Schwartz, and I won't even mention the title. And we had just done an album. So I sang for Burton in his apartment. He was just a wonderful man, big man, always wore tweed jackets and just sweet and darling. And he... I finished singing and he looked at me and he said, that is the worst song I have ever heard. <laughs> and Paul and I just went, yikes. So I sang Over the Rainbow, which was actually quite appropriate because I got to sing Look to the Rainbow in the show. And we remained friends for a while and that was that was wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. You know, so that was a good show too. But the carousel was exceptional and Richard Rogers was there every day. I think he had a bit of a crush on Connie Towers, but I laugh. I was in my dressing room one night. I was playing Carrie Pipperidge and the lighting man came into my dressing room and I was making up and I had all my curls and stuff. And he said, you know, if you fixed your nose, you wouldn't have to play funny parts all the time. Oh, <laughs> that really took me aback. Yeah. And I got very defensive. I don't always play funny, but you know, <laughs> I have a French nose, but, uh, I didn't ever shorten my nose, so that's that. But that was very hurtful. Yeah. I think he thought he was being very helpful, but it was very hurtful. Cooper! As you can hear, I have a dog. 
I want to ask you too about um, Agnes DeMille, who I know worked on that carousel. Oh yeah, she uh, she was there all the time with the court because they were doing her her choreography, and I had to dance. I had to do a dance, Carrie's character. Oh, and even though I'm somewhat of a dancer, she <laughs> she asked after I danced for her that I not be in the number. <laughs> oh. She was kind of, she said, it's not your style. I do remember doing little hop things across the floor. And uh, and actually that did not hurt me. That didn't hurt my feelings or anything. Cause she was very, you know, she was an older woman by this time, very strict about what she wanted. And uh, she worked real hard with everybody. So I want to ask about a show you did that I believe closed on the road, which was Lock Up Your Daughters. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was quite the experience you know they brought over it was very successful in England and they brought over almost the entire cast except for about four of us hired here and I was fascinated with these English people I must say their first question was at rehearsal where were the bars nearby <laughs> so I didn't really I mean I knew you could go get a drink at Sardi's or I knew you could get it you know and they had it in their contract that we stopped rehearsal at four oh. for 20 minutes so they could have tea. So we did that every day, which was really turned out to be really smart. I thought that is the time of the day where everybody starts you know, taking a bit of a dive. It's true. And uh, that was great. I, I mean, I, I had a good time doing the show and it was uh, very different, a different experience for me. And then we went to Boston and the reviews were shocked by the lyrics, when does the ravaging begin? I mean, lyrics, and I, and I mean, what you hear now in lyrics, I thought, oh my God, isn't that funny? Talk about, yeah. as time goes by, I, the people that came seemed to like it, but the reviews really did it in, really did it in. We didn't, yeah. and I was left kind of, I couldn't get, I didn't get it. You know, I just didn't understand it, but I knew they, uh, that it did not have a future. I don't think it ever, I think it was done different places later in this country, but I don't know how successful. I, I have a piece of sheet music, which is very funny with the leading man holding the girl, which was me. It's a drawing on the, on the top of the sheet music. And I laugh because it was what they used in England, but they just slapped my face <laughs> on, the, on the girl. <laughs> Lovely lover, that was one of the songs. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never been in a flop. You know, this was my first experience with an out and out <laughs> flop. Yeah. Now tell me, you because you probably remember, did Alfred Drake direct this? Yes, yes, he did. Yes. Because then later I did a season at the Goodspeed Opera House with him. Oh. And uh, we did a version of Jekyll and Hyde, which was good and bad. <laughs> It had good and bad. I had to get over the fact that uh, I'm trying to remember the director of Jekyll and Hyde, famous. He was a very good friend of Alfred's and a famous character actor. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, he got so mad at all of us with our English accents during rehearsal that he, he stopped it for about a week. He said, you're so busy acting with these phony accents. <laughs> I can't get a sense of the show. So he, he made a stop. I was intrigued with Alfred Drake, he was a relatively small man and he always had an hour 
rehearsal prior to ours, the, oh. our rehearsal, because he was one, and I didn't understand this either. I got more like this as time went on, but never to this extent. He really had to know every note of the song. He, he took note of exactly where he wanted to breathe, exactly where this should go, where his hands should go, where this should, you know, that's, so that's why he would go in an hour early so that he could really spend that time on the music and get it the way he wanted. I I can't, well, I could, but my instincts, I, I don't, I can't seem to work that way. I learn exactly what I need to learn at the beginning and the end of a song. And I learned this, you know, I learned that. And then I, I need some freedom in between. Yeah. Yeah. To phrase the way I want or breathe before a certain word or something. Um, but I am very strict about how I get into a song, how I get out, you know, <laughs> where the high point is. But he that was fascinating to me. And I I did admire him for it. And, he, and his work ethic was outstanding. The show was funny. I mean, they could not figure out a way to do the change between Jekyll and Hyde. Um, so they tried to do it with lighting. And that the first time they did it, I mean, it made me laugh. I, I left the stage for a little bit during rehearsal because he would duck down behind a desk or a bar or something and the lights would flicker and change and get red and then he'd come up <laughs> <laughs> being the bad guy. So it was kind of funny, uh, but it was fun. And then we did, they did another Rogers show. And then our last show was in, a brand new show with all brand new music. And that was kind of fun. I love working at the Goodspeed Opera House. It's a beautiful building. And I did, uh, when they first started, they asked me to do Peter Pan there. And the theater and the stage itself, it's like a little jewel box. Uh, and I laughed because they had the big guy flying me. And, uh, but I ended up coming out, not necessarily like you always see Peter Pan. Yeah coming out like that I kind of came out sideways feet first because it was such a short <laughs> such a short distance so I could slam into the wall by the mantle but it was a great production they hired a young guy to uh direct and he also built the sets because he was an illustrator and uh he was very very young Bloom was his last name and they were all local kids and he he worked with those kids they were he got them so good the production was absolutely adorable. And it was, uh, he, he, the plan was Michael Price wanted to do it every year at Christmas time, but she, he, he never did. But I, I, uh, I had a house up there by that point and I, but I remember trying to get to the theater because it was in the winter and snow and ice. And one day I turned up at a matinee and I think there were 12 people in the audience, 14 people, something like that. But we did the show full out, full everything. And, I love doing the show. I did that on and off for the rest of my career, Peter Pan. So, who did you see do it? Have you seen it? Yes. I also, I, I saw the um, TV production they did, which wasn't great. Not the Mary Martin one, but the... Oh, yeah, she was... Forgive me, I don't mean to be unkind, but I thought she was really not good. Very wrong for it. Just very, very wrong for it. Uh, yeah. I know she loved this show, and I've seen her do very decent, good work on television, but this was unfortunate. Yeah, I uh, I did a lot in Summerstock, a lot. And uh, 
Sandy Duncan's a friend of mine, so of course I I saw her her do it. She I thought was fantastic. It's a hard show. Yeah. It's a hard show to do. It's long. I mean, it's to say physical. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it was, it, but it was great. It was great. Yeah. Lordy, lordy. So I want to ask you next about how you first got into one of my favorite shows, which was Do Re Mi. Oh yeah. Oh, after I'd done that review off Broadway <clears throat> that they called me on my wedding night. Oh. And I got an agent. Joan Scott was her name. And what was fun about that was Joan Scott, it turned out that her uncle was my next door neighbor <laughs> at one point. But um, this was the big new show. This was the this was a big deal. And I I I used to say I was the first person to audition. Actually, I was the second. I think Paula Stewart was first and this was a time and I talked about that in my act this was a period as Karen could tell you where you when you were auditioning for a big Broadway show you auditioned in a theater yeah it wasn't in a room or you know rehearsal studio and Garson Kanan was the director and I was and my agent was with me she came to the audition with me and they wanted me to sing a folk song and I I didn't know one and again because I couldn't google <laughs> I, I chose kind of an art song, a song by Ralph Vaughn Williams, Come My Way, My Truth, My Light. Uh, but before I went out on stage, Garson Kanan jumped up the stairs on the side and came backstage and said, oh, my darling, we're so happy you could come sing for us today. We've heard so much about you. I mean, I said, that never happened again. <laughs> He was such a gentleman. And I mean, talking to my agent just stood there with her mouth open. She'd never seen this kind of a greeting for an audition. And uh, and I came out and they asked, you know, I told them what I was going to sing. <clears throat> and I sang it. It's an absolutely beautiful song, I must say. And Julie Stein was so impressed <laughs> with my choice of song. And then he started having me just do scales. Oh all kinds of scales and vocal things. And I could hear them all talking. I heard Betty Common saying, oh, for God's sake, Julie, she can do anything. Just, what are you doing? He said, and he said I'm having a good time. I'm having a good time. <laughs> uh, so finally they let me go. Now this was in the morning and uh, my husband then was working at the Seagram's building in New York on Park Avenue. And uh, I didn't know how soon they would let me know. I didn't, I just didn't know. So we, I met my husband at work at, the Seagram's room, and we sat at the bar. I don't think either one, I didn't, certainly didn't drink then. And I got a phone call. Uh, I called my agent and they said, they want you. Now that doesn't happen often either that you find out the first day. That's not common either. So, and I couldn't believe it. So then the next day or the next day or two, again, my agent took me. I mean, this never happens either. And we both went to David Merrick's office to talk about my contract. Oh, uh, <laughs> which is crazy, you know, and, and Merrick, uh, he sat and stared at me and talked to me and told me he thought I was quite wonderful, but that would make no difference in my contract. And <laughs> so finally, he asked me to leave and he and uh, the agent hashed it all out. He, he scared me a little bit, but during the run of the show, he would come by all the time. He liked Phil Servers. He liked Nancy Walker. Um, and he liked me. I mean, we always talked. And then he started dating my understudy. Uh, it was a crazy time. It was a fantastic time for me. And when I, you know, everybody says, what was your favorite 
jobs show. I mean, that it's almost impossible to answer, but I thought nothing could beat that experience. Yeah. Here I was working with these major stars and they had like seven different fantastic character actors oh. in it. And I, I, I learned a lot from watching them. I've never seen people finesse their roles so perfectly. I mean, they, I would see them off of the side during rehearsals, you know, just getting every little moment right. Yeah. You know, so when they came on, uh, you know, in my age, because I was very nervous and anxious about, uh, anxious about going into rehearsal. And she said, you know, just, just be quiet, <laughs> be quiet and listen and don't get crazy. And, uh, and also before we went to rehearsal, they hadn't chosen the leading man yet. So they had me come to some of the auditions. And then when they liked someone, they would have me get up on stage with them. And, and I was fearful at that point that they would change their mind. Oh. about me you know but they didn't thank god and julie stein he was so crazy about me and my voice and they hired a man named john reardon to play the leading man who made me swoon with his voice i just loved his voice but julie would always ask me do you like this song and I, at one point i had a folk song and I, I i didn't like it and mainly i didn't like it because i didn't think i could sing it very well it's very high i, I just so I told him, I, I said, I'm not real comfortable with this. Okay, okay, I'll write you another one. Oh. God, that never happened again either. <laughs> you know, I mean, to have that kind of situation, you know, uh, I don't think many people have ever experienced that where the yes. composer would just say, hey, I'll do whatever you want. I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. And everybody came to see the show. Just everybody. I mean, so I was meeting the world. You know, Kennedy came one night, and uh, I mean, it was it was an extraordinary experience. And they always sent me. I did all, uh, all the uh, PR. Oh. Nancy Walker and Phil yeah. really want to do a lot of stuff because, as I found out as my career continued and years went by, it's exhausting. Yeah, doing interviews. I mean, like to do an interview with you, like for two hours or whatever. Yeah. You don't want to do that when you're, you know, when you're performing that night. Yeah. yeah. You, you can't. <laughs> so, yeah, for our first Broadway show, and I was nominated for a Tony right away. And But this was kind of, uh, you know, the rules for the Tony Award. I was, I was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical. And in that category, because their names were not above the title, was Cheetah Rivera for Bye Bye Birdie and Tammy Grimes for Unsinkable Molly Brown. And they were absolutely the stars of the show, but their names were not <laughs> above the title. So I knew I wouldn't win, but it was, a, that was fantastic. So the whole, the whole experience of that show was terrific. Even, it was funny because they changed the show, you know, of course, a lot and uh, they got different choreographers. But what happened was too, after we ran what, over a year, I know it was over a year, uh, they went on the road and I went, oh, I can't do that because I'm married. <laughs> and David Merrick went, you signed this contract? <laughs> it says you do the show for two years, no matter where it is. So I, uh, I did go on the road. The one thing I, cause no one likes to have regrets, but I do regret this. 
they wanted to know if I wanted to go to London to do the show. And again, I can't go off to London to do the show. I never mentioned it to my husband. And, and months later, maybe even a year later, I mentioned it and he just went, oh my God, I could have come. Uh, my company has business in Europe. I mean, I could have come. And I, I so am sorry about that because I've never sung in London. And uh, I know it would have been just a phenomenal experience for me, but that was my youth. I was very young, <laughs> very married. And I, uh, I just didn't think it was possible. So, but all in all, yeah, that was a, that was a phenomenal experience. And I remember we opened <clears throat> at Christmas time and then Betty Condon invited me to her New Year's party, New Year's Day party, whatever it was. I mean, she was famous for this party. I, my husband and I just sat there in awe. I think I even brought my in-laws because Henry Fonda was there and Lena Horne. And Lena, I remember my husband and I were sitting on the couch and she dragged a chair over and sat in front of me and just went, oh, honey, you're just the best. She went on like that. And then... Um, Judy Garland came and brought Liza. And Liza was still a young, I don't know how old she was, young girl at that point. And I thought, what a strange little girl she was. <laughs> Who knew? Because then later, not too long later, I was vying for a Tony with her. Uh, so it was that kind of whirlwind, glamorous, fun, <laughs> everything you think about associated with that show. It was great. Yeah. And I do want to ask you what it was like to work with Phil Silvers, because I know a lot of people say different things about him. You know, about years, I'm going to say five years ago, whenever it was, I ran into one of his grandchildren. And I said, I'm so glad to meet you, because I want to tell you how wonderful he was. He was so generous to me and uh, helpful to me. He also liked me because I would listen to all his showbiz stories. Oh. You know, if there were, ever we were at a party together, an event, he would always kind of hang around with me and talk to me. But he he really, he again taught, taught me decorum. And I remember when they in rehearsal and I actually was upstaging him, but I was not aware of it. Because uh, like I said, I was brought up in the theater in the round. So you don't have to think about things like that in the round. That was still close to home to me in the theater. Anyway, he just said, honey, you gotta come down right with me. You deserve to be right downstage with me and you come down with me. And then before I sang my first big number, I mean, I think his lines were sing for me, kid. <laughs> he got a chair, pulled it around and his back was to the audience and the edge of the chair was right on the edge of the stage. And he would always, like opening night, he'd wink at me and say, yeah. let him have it, sing for him, honey. He just, you know, he just made me feel good. He just always made me feel good. And uh, so I had nothing but generous things to say about him. I don't know, I, I, I've heard other things, but that's, you know, that's what I know. And he was superb, a superb actor and a musician. And when the show was getting a little funky, when they realized it wasn't perfect and everything, and they would, he said, they're waiting for me to ad lib. <laughs> they're waiting for me. He said, and I ain't going to do that. But I couldn't get over how well he sang also. He just, uh, he was great. He had twins. 
while we were in the show, he came out one night after uh, for the curtain call holding two dolls, tell the audience that he had just had twins. Uh, he had a beautiful, beautiful life. So, that's all I know. oh God, I'm so sorry about this. My husband's going in and out of the house. That's what's doing this. Oh, I, I want to ask a little bit more about Garson Kanan, who of course was the director, what he was like. Yeah, I had mixed feelings about him, but what I realized very early on, he had no experience whatsoever with the musical. I mean, what I loved about him was he was such a gentleman and well-spoken and clever and talented, all those things. But he he got in trouble with the, the complications of a musical, you know, when he said, especially as the sets were being built and we were getting near time to open up. And then after we opened up on the road, he couldn't just say, cut that and go here and do this. They went, hold it. <laughs> We, uh, you can't do that. We have this and that. And then he disappeared. When we got to Philadelphia, he oh. just disappeared for about a week. He really didn't know what to do. Yeah. I don't, I don't mean to sound mean or bitter because I'm not, but he, everybody was like, Jesus, where, you know, where, where is he? But I knew, even I knew then, he, he really doesn't know how to handle this or, or what to do. And then one night he really hurt my feelings. <laughs> You know, we, they, the song, What's New at the Zoo. Yeah. Everybody had a shot at singing that at one point. And oh. it wasn't working, but David Merrick wanted that song in the show, no matter what. So at one point, Nancy Walker did it. At another point, some four cops did it. And then they did it. And then I came in one day to rehearsal and no one would look at me. I came in and I'd see people just kind of looking away. And I went, uh-oh. It's mine. I knew that <laughs> the song was now mine. So they whipped up costumes and threw me on. And I did it the first night. And then we had notes afterwards, being on the road to it. So now there's a company of 50, 60 people sitting there. And what I loved was Garson Kanan's wife, Ruth Gordon, was always there, always there. A little plaid skirt, blouse, a little sweater tied around her shoulders. I was fascinated with her <laughs> and she thought I was, she really liked, thought I was talented. She always said, anyway, she was sitting there and we were all sitting there. It's the first night I had done What's New at the Zoo and Garson just turns to Julie Stein. He said, well, what are we going to do about it? It was just awful. What are you going to do with her? Oh. And I was popular in the company and I, of course, I hear started to run down and everybody felt so bad for me a mm -hmm. uh, little more discussion like that and then they he went on to other notes and the next morning nancy walker said let me tell you what happened after you all left she said ruth grabbed him right by the shirt and said how dare you talk to her that way it's your responsibility to get out of this number what you want what it should be you don't embarrass her in front of the whole company that way when she's just done it once. I mean, she really let him have it. And I thought, isn't this amazing? It's just amazing. <laughs> so the next day when I'm coming in, he came up beside me, hi, honey, put his arm around me, was making up, making up. I mean, those kind of things happen. Yeah. I mean, I learned all that later. I mean, but at that moment, I was so upset. Uh, 
but the show opened and uh, I didn't know what kind of reviews we would get. I was having such a good time. I didn't, and then we were shocked because the reviews were, were really good. <laughs> so uh, it was nothing but a good experience for me all the way through. I could have done the show forever, you know? Yeah. It was great. So I want to ask you, I know we talked about the Tonys briefly, but I want to ask about your experience with them in general, including that and Bajor when you were nominated too, and any other time you've been there? Yeah, I, you know, I don't remember Doremi. I don't remember where the ceremony was. I don't remember. Oh. Bajor was a whole other thing because I was nominated and Cheetah wasn't. Uh, but we were, we became really close during that show. And uh, we went with, it was Cheetah, I'm trying to remember who she was, me, me and my husband and George Grizzard, who was a fabulous actor. We all rented a big old limousine. And at that point, the Tonys were held in a hotel ballroom. And again, I was up against, uh, I think Elizabeth Allen and Liza, who the day before the nominations came out, Hal put her name above the titles so that she could compete in this star category. And again, I went, well, there it goes. <laughs> and I really laughed because Cheetah and I, when we got to our table, uh, the Tony Awards really were in kind of two rooms, uh, the main big ballroom and then the doorway and then another room. And we were right in like in the doorway of this, the, the second ballroom and I said, I ain't gonna be getting this Tony. <laughs> I know that. We had a great time anyway. Gina and I got all dolled up. We really laughed at ourselves. We had our pony fingernails on and our hair pieces. And we were all dolled up and it was it was a fun night for me. Yeah. Regardless. Uh, I never got to see Lies in that show, which I'm kind of sorry, but uh, you know, it's fun to be nominated, but like everybody, everybody's doing a good job. Everybody's working hard and, and everybody cares. But uh, so just being a part of all that was, you know, it was a good, it was a good time. And she and I are still very close friends. So that's the outcome of that show. I'm sorry, you know, someone from a school asked me if I had the original script of Bajor. I don't. I don't know what happened to it. They changed it so drastically because what happened was Cheetah was the star, the main star, but the show was about my character. So when we did the big run through before we left town, people went, hmm. Uh, I mean, and Cheetah's agents had to say something. You know, you gotta <laughs> give her more to do and everything. But they didn't really find a good way to do that. So a lot of things got changed and on the road, they wanted to bring in Gower Champion. And Cheetah said, that's a great idea because he knows how to put a show together, you know, like pull it together. But to do so, they would have fired five people. They would have fired Peter Gennaro. They would have fired the director and like three of the actors. And in the long run, the produ producer didn't do it. And it's kind of too bad because I think it, it was a unique story, you know, but everything like in Boston, it didn't have a truly happy ending and some of the papers commented on that. So they changed the ending and they shouldn't have. They, they really shouldn't have. And Walter Marks, the music's great. The album is really fun to listen to. Um, it's a great album. I got very sick during the show and that 
that, and I missed it for a month. I had to get out for a month. Uh, so psychologically things were going on that were unfortunate, but again, it was a great show. I have to stop this dog, hang on. So I do want to ask you about In Bajor developing that great song, Where's the Tribe for Me? That's yeah, I had to do that for my audition. Oh. And what was funny was my pianist at that time, Dick De Benedictus, who was an outrageous, outrageously talented pianist and writer. Um, he became a very famous, uh, he did music for all the television shows and everything else. But he was hired immediately <laughs> after that, even though he had a broken arm and was in a cast. He was hired immediately to do the dance arrangements. Uh, but that song was quite a feat. I, and, you know, like I mentioned four years ago when I did my last engagement in New York at the, uh, at the Club 54, I sang that whole song in the original key. <laughs> and I did send a card to Walter Marks. I'm really sorry he didn't come. I always loved the music, but it was funny. As years went by, I realized how, how really good it is and how really talented he is. Uh, so it would have been a joy to see him again. And, and, it, and next time I come to New York, I'd really like to find him. I'll yes. ask Spencer Mascap to find him for me because he should have had even a, he had a good career. Yeah. But I think he should have had a bigger career. Uh, yeah, that song was really something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, that song came right off the bat. This um, is my predict. Hi, how are you? You know, I have a problem here. Boom. You know, I was into the song. Uh, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But it was fun to do. So. And, <laughs> and I want to ask um, what it was like to work with Herschel Bernardi and Mae Questell and all those other great people. Yeah, Herschel was fine. I wasn't crazy about him, I have to confess. I shouldn't say these things out loud on video. Oh. Uh, okay. But I thought he was very good in the show. Really good. And I know at the time he... he he so desperately wanted to do Fiddler. So I was really happy for him that he got to do it eventually. He wanted to be in something like that and who wouldn't? But so, he worked, you know, he worked hard and he, he I, thought he, I thought he was great in the show. Yeah. He had great energy, was a great character. And uh, so his contribution was terrific. Uh, I never became very close to him. We didn't become, you know, friendly that much. I mean, he lived in, you know, whereas Cheetah and I do. <clears throat> Mae Questel was this cute little woman. I mean, she <laughs> she was quite a character and I, I wasn't aware at the time of her doing her Betty Boop voice. I never got to know her very well. We never hung out together or anything like that. So, but I always enjoyed her and I found her kind of kooky and unique and it was a whole nother dimension to the show because of her. People just loved her. So that's always a very positive thing. <laughs> I do want to ask you also about Peter Gennaro and Lawrence Kasha, who were the director. <laughs> Peter was great. He was a you know a little guy, little man. He just he again he had such energy and enthusiasm and so loved what he was doing, uh, and of course loved Cheetah and and the other dancers. And uh, I was I was thrilled. I was thrilled that, to to be with him. And in his company, I mean, I didn't have much to do with him because I wasn't dancing. <laughs> he didn't have to say, no, I don't want her in the number. Uh, 
but I really loved him. Larry Kasha, uh, I mean, he was, they were, he was really mad at me when I got sick. So um, my lasting feelings for him are not great. Let's leave it at that. You know, he, I mean, it was hard on everybody. I missed a show I remember out of town. And unfortunately the standby for me was really not good. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that didn't make him happy. I said, but that's not my doing. That's, not, you know, that's just too bad. Um, yeah, I didn't leave on the best of terms with Larry. Again, we didn't bond. We didn't have a great relationship, but he, he got the show together. So I compliment him on that. I do. I don't know. You know, I don't know what happened to him after that. So I want to ask you next about going back a little bit about playing Maria in The Sound of Music. So how did you first come to do this? Uh, they just asked me to do it. Uh, but I had to go meet Richard Rogers uh, in his office. And uh, I was a little anxious because he had a reputation yeah. I don't, as a womanizer, kind of a, he had his girlfriend. Uh, and I must say, when I went into his office, he locked the door and that made me very nervous. Oh. But he just talked to me, we just talked. <laughs> yeah. uh, he wanted my opinion on the show and other things I had done. And, you know, it was very nice and I left and, uh, that was fun for me. I, I didn't have very long to learn the show. I think it was under two weeks. And I remember when I, uh, the day of the show, I think this is true. I had a music rehearsal in the morning and then I, they did a run through in the afternoon and then I opened that night. So that meant I did the show three times that day. But as I came for the, the afternoon, they were putting my name up on the marquee, you know, over the title, over the title. And I was asked, standing there watching them, D-U-S-S-A, -S -S and the stage manager came running out the door and said, get in here, they're waiting for you. And I said, yeah, but look what they're doing. So, uh, but that was a treat to do that show. I, I, I really loved doing this show and I was a good age to be doing this show. You know, I was still very young and I had the right energy, even though the director said to me, he said, Oh, my dear, you must take naps. And I said, I have to take a nap? <laughs> really? I have to take a nap. Mary always took a nap. Uh, but I hadn't been at a show that had that kind of appeal to families and kids and nuns and priests, <laughs> everything else. I mean, I got fan mail from, from priests. And, uh, and we could have run for a long, much longer. Uh, as, as the show ended, we were on two first. Uh, God, do they do still do that? Uh, because the Carol Burnett show, Carol Burnett was coming in in the show, uh, which unfortunately flopped because we were still doing a very decent uh, number of people every night and because people returned to the show. You know, they saw it over and over and over again. And I loved it because as my career went on and people I met, just people socially and who've become my friends, oh my God, I saw you in that show. My mother took me to see you. Oh my God. And there's that is really the best. Yeah. I said, you know, <clears throat> give me a family show anytime. <laughs> because, well, you know, you don't, people that you really like or you, you become acquainted with in a show that you don't forget them. Yeah. You just don't forget them, you know, that presence on stage. And 
I know the, the choreographer came in one time after I'd been in the show maybe a week and his note to me was, he said, you don't act like a star when you come on. I want you to, and I said, but I'm not. I mean, but the audience doesn't go, oh God, here she is. I said, but by the end of the show, they know really yeah. I'm the star. And it was funny because during that time, had to be during that time, I saw Mary Martin in a show and I went, oh, I know exactly what he meant by that. Because the minute she walked on stage, everything about her, her she had fabulous posture, her posture, her attitude, you went, ah, this is a star. I mean, you just, I mean, you know, when I came on in Santa Music, you were sitting on a mountaintop uh, singing your heart out. I didn't know quite how to translate that into my performance at, at that point. Uh, but I sure got it later when I saw certain people you know on stage who who were big stars uh, yeah it's interesting though in the musical theater there aren't that many big stars people who do go on especially in the stages people that go on from show to show and experience that kind of success doesn't happen that often you know <laughs> bernadette certainly did it you know barbara cook did it uh Present day, I know there's some really good women out there. Uh, oh God, I'm trying to think of one now. I think the last thing she did was take over in uh, My Fair Lady. Oh, Laura uh, Benanti? Yeah. 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 I mean, she's having a very successful career and she's really good, you know. Yeah. She's also been able to combine television and stuff. Uh, but it's hard to have a real ongoing big time career. I mean, mine. I had just done a play off Broadway with Joseph Papp, Trelawney of the Wells. And uh, it was just a great show, great production, great for me. Uh, and it, and right, but there was a newspaper strike, so it never got quite the accolades and crowd that it should have. And then I got a job in California and Joe Papp was so mad at me <laughs> and he never hired me again. How can you do this? You stay here and I'll put you in this and we'll do that. And But I was eager to do some television, you know, and I had a good job offer. So uh, then earned good money. Yeah. So, uh, you know, off I went, but uh, I was sorry that I never got to do anything down there again. Cause that was, that was great. All Jessica Tandy and even Cronin came to see this show and they just thought I was the cat's pajamas. So it was exciting to be in a play. Yeah, <laughs> a, a real play. I like doing plays. Yeah. I I want to ask what it was like to work with Joseph Papp. It was great. He uh, he was very much the captain of the ship down there. I mean, he I know he made a lot of people mad too, but I so admired what he was doing. Yeah, you know, he was a real force, <laughs> a real dynamic force of a person. And the actor who actually put the show together and wanted to do it, Joe Papp agreed to mount it and do it because he just liked this man so much. He thought he was so talented, which is really great. Yeah. <laughs> he would do that just for someone he really admired. Uh, that's how it got on. Um, so I, I had such admiration for him for how gutsy he was. Yeah. And uh, he was tough. He was a tough, devoted theater guy, you know, he, he was really some, all the different shows he did and, and the people he got. It, uh, I was very proud of myself that I worked with him.
Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So I want to ask you about doing um, the Beggar's Opera on TV. So what was it like to be doing a musical, except it was filmed? What was sort of the difference? It was hard. It was hard. Uh, Kenneth Haig was in it. He was great. Linda Lavin was in it. We worked so hard and then came the day of the filming and they wanted to do it all in one take. I mean, <laughs> oh. and you know, they kept stopping. And I said, you know, I have 17 songs in this. I can't, I won't be able to do this, you yeah. know. Uh, and also I was a little distressed with Linda. I don't think I've ever told her this and I must someday. She was great. She came off just great, but she threw us all off because it was a whole different performance than during rehearsal. So every time she opened her mouth, whoever was with her was like, uh, <laughs> it was always like a, oh, okay. I had a copy of it somewhere and I haven't looked at it yet. So uh, I had seen it at some point. It, it, it was, I remember it was very dark the way they photographed it and everything. It was all very in, kind of intense and yeah, depressing, a little bit depressing. <laughs> But it was quite a feat. And I, yeah, someone just sent me a, uh, one of those little things that just stick in your computer. <laughs> I mean, so I haven't looked at it again, which I must now that you bring it up. I really want to, I'm really curious to see it again. Yeah. Uh, I also did something at the same time, which I've never seen again, and I'm longing to find it. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a thing with Alan Alda, which was a takeoff on all the Doris Day Rock Hudson movies. And we did that for PBS. And I thought, what happened to that? <laughs> you know? yeah. Somebody somewhere, maybe someday in New York, I can track, go to PBS, track it down. Because uh, I loved Alan Alden. Okay. Um, still do. I think he's extraordinary. So, yeah. I've had some, you, you really know everything. I may have to cut this off. We may have to do another one. But tell me, go ask me another question. Oh, um, I want to ask you about doing a performance at the White House of Fiorello next. So how did that, how did that happen at first? Well, they asked uh, Jean Dalrymple, you know, who was running the city center music. She was the one that was the producer of all the musicals they did it. I'm looking, I'm looking at myself on camera. I'm getting whiter and whiter because the light is changing in this room. Um, she was asked to do it and it was a shortened version. And again, yes, one Sandy Duncan in it. Yeah, they had a great cast, and they were discussing in a discussion about the music and the songs. And they cut the song, "The Bum One," and I said, "I live there. I mean, I live right outside of Washington. That's the one number you cannot cut. I'm telling you, because this was, I think, for a governor's conference. So every governor was there, uh, and of course, it stopped the show cold. I mean. Yes. I'm so happy they listened to me. They kept the number in. It was, you know, Johnson was president then. And uh, I remember my singing teacher was very dismayed because he didn't like him. Oh. And, he didn't, and he didn't think I should go. I said, are you kidding? It's the White House. Don't you see, if you don't like him, that's even a better reason to go. You can see how everything, how everything works and how he talks to people. You can get all the gossip and, and, and stuff. And it was so sweet. My parents... Mrs. Johnson heard that my parents lived in Alexandria and she said, oh, please, let's have them come. Oh. So they called them and they wouldn't come. My father said, I don't have a tuxedo. 
I couldn't, they got, they just got very uncomfortable with the thought of coming to the White House. Yeah. Um, I was, I was thrilled to be at the White House. The show was really good. Uh, and I remember before we started, they said, Johnson, of course, the president will be right down front and you can tell if he's bored if he starts, if his hand is in his pocket and he's jiggling the change in his pocket. That's, that's the way you'll know if he's really bored. Uh, but he never did that. Oh. You know, we were all wined and dined and fed it and it was snowing outside. It was just, it was beautiful. And I danced with Hubert Humphrey, I remember. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's, it's really an experience to go there. And I have to confess these last four years with Mr. Trump that we, they never had an event there. They never did any musical evenings or did anything like that. And I miss seeing those. Because yeah. I always looked forward. And, uh, Obama always had these wonderful evenings. I mean, it started with Jackie Kennedy. They always, you know, had these lovely evenings and events. And um, it was a joy to see them. And it was a thrill to be there. And I got a big Christmas card from them. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> the next year. So, yeah, it was a great experience. Great. Yeah. So I think I want to ask you about one more thing and then maybe that will be a good place to sort of break between okay. part one or two. So I want to ask you about doing half a sixpence at the Kenley Players. What was it like to work with John Kenley? Because I know that he has been- Quite a character, huh? From what yeah. you've heard and read. And boy, was he ever. Uh, with his bright red hair and running around on a bicycle everywhere. Uh, yeah, he was- unlike anyone I had ever seen or met. And again, I found him fun. Uh, he had this fantastic energy and what he had done. I mean, our show went to three different places. I mean, what he had done theatrically to, in that area of the country to bring in all these stars and produce all these shows was phenomenal. And I know when I was there, he said, I'm giving you a party. We're gonna have a big party tonight. And he came and sat outside my hotel room. He wanted to see what I was going to wear because you do know that he was a woman in the winter yes. in Florida. He became a woman in the winter in Florida. He was, you know, the red hair, very, very, very pale skin. And I, everybody was crazy about him. At least I sure was. I, I, of course, I couldn't quite picture what his, the extremes of his life. Yeah. And I was absolutely fascinated by it and everything I heard about him. And, uh, yeah, I was crazy about him and I worked with uh, Noel Harrison and that was great. It was, it was good. You yeah. know, it's doing those kind of, and Karen did many more, much more than I did in Summerstock and stuff. It was always fun to go see these other towns, number one, uh, and, and always so amazing to see the response to the theater. And he, he really was the first one to realize, I mean, unfortunately, he didn't always hire theater people. He knew the value of hiring people from television. He knew that that was a way to get people to come into the theater. Yeah. So, because I had done both, you know, theater and, and television, I was, he, he, he wanted me there. He liked me there. Uh, Cause that's what happened to my career in New York. I would never, never have gone probably to LA, but my agent one day said, I'm having trouble even getting you a job in summer stock 
because you're not on television. He said, you've got to get on television to keep your, your career going. Yeah. And uh, I had done things on television, but I, again, I looked out, I came to LA and stayed in my manager's pool house Uh-oh. and got a series right away. I mean, that was lucky. The other series I had done in the early 70s, the new Dick Van Dyke show, I really got that because Carl Reiner had just seen me in Trelawney of the Wells. Oh. He had just seen me in that. So he brought me in to, at first to play the wife, Dick Van Dyke's wife, and then they thought I was too short and too young. (laughs) (laughs) And then after the show started, they'd already done one or two, they brought me in as another secondary character. So that was great. So, I mean, I lucked out and got that show and then I worked a lot every summer. For two full summers, my husband directed me and I'm getting my act together and taking me on the road. We toured all over the place. And that was tremendous because I loved the show. And, uh, you know, I brought the idea to my agents. They went, oh, you can't do that. No one's going to book that. They don't know your husband and blah, blah, blah. So he just got on the phone and booked two full (laughs) summers of the show. So we had a ball. We had a ball. That was one of my favorite shows to do because it was one of it was a contemporary, you know, musical. And I was glad to be in something that had something to talk about, about women and how they're seen in the workforce and, yeah. you know, them wanting to do what they want to do. I, you know, I was making big statements. Uh, so that was, that was, I love the show. It was great. It was great. And that is where I ended part one of my interview with the fabulous Nancy Dussault. Make sure to come back next time for part two, and thanks for tuning in.